Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Virginia Pye, author of two award-winning novels and of the recently published book of short stories, Shelf Life of Happiness, published by Press 53 right here in Winston-Salem. Virginia, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you so much, Charlie. I am delighted to be here, and um, I have actually been to Bookmarks and thought it was a beautiful bookstore, and so exciting, too, because there's so many um, community events, and it's really a center for the community. Which yeah, is it really is really a great, great space. So let's start by talking about you for a little bit. I'm always interested to hear from writers who have taught writing, which you've done for many years and in many places. Tell us a little bit about your teaching career, and specifically, what have you learned from your students? Wow, well, that's a great question. Um, I have taught over the years. Um, when I was first came out of graduate school, I taught at, uh, at Continuing Ed at New York University. And then I ended up, my husband and I moved from New York City to Philadelphia, and I ended up teaching at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and then after that, I also taught in Richmond, Virginia, at a literary nonprofit to other adults. And now in Boston, where I now live, I uh, am teaching, starting to teach a bit at Grub Street, which is a large literary nonprofit here. So I've had the experience of teaching um, writing. Oh, I forgot to mention, I actually taught in high school at one point, too. Um, so, but I've talked to all different ages, um, not the very young, but high school up. And um, I've loved teaching adults, probably most of all, um, because I really appreciate how people come to creative writing with such hopes and um, real ambitions that are very, very genuine. You know, people really have stories they want to tell. And, um, and so it's a very sort of honest thing that, that people are going after. And I, and I appreciate that, even though I teach fiction and it's, it's, it's actually about making things up and, <laughs> but, but the intention behind it is very pure. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Why do you think it's important to teach and to learn not just writing in general, but creative writing in particular? Well, you know, I'm not I'm not part of an MFA program, so I, I haven't really gotten into that whole world of um, wh- where I think now it's much clearer how to teach writing, and there's just many different levels of it, and um, there's sort of a whole apparatus around the teaching of writing. I have sort of stuck more to the edges where I, as I mentioned, you know, teach adults and um, I, I think what's important, I, and these are often as people who aren't necessarily going to go on to become professional writers necessarily, the way you might encounter with people who are getting MFAs. Um, so I end up thinking of the writing more as just this incredibly rich way for people to get to their own personal stories mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to enrich their own lives and, um, you know, enrich, enrich the lives of their readers too, hopefully. But um, so, you know, to me, it's it's just been a lovely way to get to know people and to have people have an opportunity to to share who they are and, and get to know themselves more deeply through writing. I think that's interesting what you said. So often on the show, we we're talking about, you know, how are you communicating with your readers and, and to think about writers, the, the act of writing actually being something that is as much for the writer it is is for the reader is important for us to all remember, I think. 
the idea yeah. of the literary nonprofit organization, mm-hmm. uh, like Bookmarks, like Grub Street, is something, when I was a kid, I, I don't think that existed. Maybe, maybe in a couple of big cities it might have, but it certainly wasn't as widespread as it is now. And you were involved in starting a literary nonprofit in Richmond, Virginia. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. Um, well, actually, I wasn't one of the founders of James River Writers, uh, but I was sort of in the next tier or the next wave of people involved, and I ended up being um, really involved with it for about a decade and head of it for a number of years. And um, And James River Writers is, um, as, a, as we're talking about, a literary nonprofit. It has about 400 members, and um, it really came out of the impulse of some professional writers there in Richmond who sort of looked into their Rolodexes, to use an old-fashioned term, <laughs> and decided to bring to town the, the fellow writers and publishing professionals who they knew personally to share with other aspiring writers. And they did this for a number of years, and then they suddenly realized, well, you know, actually, why don't we really do this more systematically? So they started to have an annual conference, which still um, continues today in early October of every year, and it's a fantastic conference. It's um, they they have a, a sort of a large or, or wide umbrella. Lots of different types of writers. Um, some literary, some more commercial, um, young adults, uh, genre, all sorts of different types. And um, and so James River Writers has a sort of a unique character in that it's just super welcoming, super welcoming to writers of different levels, and super welcoming to writers with different ambitions and different styles. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. and I feel like I, I enjoyed helping to set that tone, not knowing what direction it might go in. And now I see they've really, the current people who are in charge of it, it's now has a, has a part-time director, a paid person and all of that. Back in our day, it was completely all volunteer. Um, but you know, the great thing about it is it means that there's sort of a writing, um, center there in central Virginia that attracts people um, from the Carolinas and from nearby states. And I, I was at the last conference presenting my most recent book, and there people had come from quite a far difference, uh, far far distance. Um, so you know, it's it, I think it's a great thing. Again, it kind of follows up on that idea of of ways to enrich people's lives through writing, um, mm-hmm. who maybe aren't going to try to make it their absolute profession. They're not going to go on to necessarily teach it themselves, um, but but they have you know really strong ambitions, and, and for some it really does work out. Yeah. So. Um, your, great thing. your new book is a collection of short stories called Shelf Life of Happiness. So I want to talk about the short story form for a little bit. And I'll go full disclosure here. Uh, yeah. You know, I went through the MFA program where mostly what you do is write short stories. And as a writer, I'm really intimidated by short stories. I find them very difficult. So I have great admiration for those people who can pull them off. There, there's so much pressure in my mind, to get everything right when you're only writing just a few pages. Um, Why did you choose to write in that particular form? Well, you know, it's probably just like you in the sense that when I started out writing in schools, that's what you write because it's, it's actually too hard to workshop or have a conversation about the start of a novel or, you know, a chapter from the middle of a novel. Um, And also when you're first starting out, um, novels are very unwieldy, very challenging, and it's just not a, necessarily a great place for somebody to, to try to um, sink their teeth into writing. So, you know, we all start to learn by writing short stories. And I started, I think I wrote my first short story in middle school, and then I, I carried on in English classes in high school. And 
um, by the end of high school, had been doing it for a little while. And then I, of course, did it in college and then in grad school. And so, you know, it is something um, that you can get better at simply with practice. Um, but I, my problem, maybe this is yours too, is I always would write really long short stories. Right. <laughs> and ones that are sort of bulging at the seams. And, you know, and, and I was really sort of a novelist at heart. Um, but hadn't yet written a novel for a long time, and then I did finally in, in grad school. But um, so I think they're—I think really they're—they are two very different skills. Um, but um, and so depending on which way you veer, if you're somebody who's maybe more of a poet, you might have to expand your craft to write a short story. And if you're someone who's more of a novelist, then you have to shrink your ambitions mm-hmm. to write a short story. Um, but but you're right. It's a unique form. It's not the same thing as a novel, and it's not the same thing as poetry. It's its own tight little sculptures that you have to really hone and work on. Um, it, it it I don't know. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. That's all I, I can say. I, I'm sure that you <laughs> yeah. know we all remember a few short stories that we read in high school. I was thinking back to my high school English class, and I can remember Rappaccini's Daughter and the Lottery and a couple of others, and oh. and also. Many of us know that there was a time not so long ago when every home in America had a stack of weekly magazines that were full of short stories, uh, like the Saturday Evening Post and things of that sort. Uh, But these days it feels to me like short stories get short shrift, not only from publishers but from readers. And and yet at the same time, in our sort of short attention span era, it it seems like the perfect form. How do you think we can get... It's an odd... Yeah. How can we get Sorry, more? Pe- yes. How can we get more people to read short stories? Well, I think it's happening. I'm watching these awards this year and maybe last year, and it seems like uh, you know George Saunders, the 10th of December, mm-hmm. and Lauren Gross, Florida, and Karen um, Russell's collections. These are really respected, uh, you know, writers who also have a popular following. They're literary writers who have a popular following whose expertise is in the short story. Um, obviously, Alice Munro. What about, um, oh golly, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting, uh, who, who wrote Olive Kittredge, uh, Elizabeth Stout. Oh, right, um, right. You know, these are all books that have won awards and some started to be made into movies and things like that. And um and they are short stories. So I, I think there's life in this form yet. And I, I agree. It, is, it seems completely logical that the short story would catch on. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think the, maybe some of the larger publishing houses uh, definitely aren't quite there yet. Um, uh, but, you know, maybe it'll start to. I was amazed. I don't know if this was the first ever celebrity book of short stories, but Tom Hanks has a book of short stories out um, that, that are sort of yep. centered around his passion for uh, for vintage yep. typewriters, which is a passion that I share. So I, I, I thought that was a, oh, yeah. actually a pretty good book. Um, pretty cool. And James uh, James Franco, too, had a yeah. collection of stories. So, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. So maybe, you know, we, maybe these celebrities will help us right, help move right. things forward. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of novelists about their process. I've talked to some who write complete outlines before they get started and others who just Mm -hmm. open up a blank page and and dive in. Uh, But as you said, the short story is a different animal. Tell us a little bit about about your process and especially what happens in that process before you actually sit down and start typing a first draft. Well, the stories um, I don't outline. Um, I do with novels for the most part, although I veer off of the the outlines with the novels, um, but I like to have a roadmap. Um, 
with the short stories, they really come out of a, an, an impulse or an observation, uh, something that I've noticed um, in my life or something that I've read. Um, it's a little moment of inspiration or irony that life sort of hands me. And I start to play around with it. Um, maybe it's the voice that comes first. Oftentimes for me, it's actually the setting. Um, and then the story sort of evolves. And, and I often sort of know in general where it's headed, but I don't ever, you know, write down an actual outline. Um, for me, the stories tend to be about 25, uh, 20 to 25 pages long total. And so... That's that's enough to keep in in my head all at once, um, and um, you know, and then I and then I um, revise over many many you know weeks and months, and in these case, uh, the case of these stories, over years. So, do you find it yeah. useful to just put a story away for six months or a year, and then come back to it when you're in the revision process? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and you know, the the, the most um, the, the the way I've done that. The, uh, you know, most frequently probably is by sending them out and meaning to literary journals and literary magazines and which have such a long return time. You can, you can send a story out and not here for nine months and then, and then it comes back to you. And if, you know, you may not hear anything back, no feedback at all, or you may get a few comments back. If you're very lucky, it it gets taken. Um, But it's, by the time it comes back, um, I've had enough time to have some distance on it, and there may be some um, advice offered, and then I can dive back in and revise. So um, that's why these stories I wrote them actually over a span of ten years, mm. and um, and so or, or maybe it's even longer in a way because the earliest one that was was uh, that was published I think was in 2008, and here we are in 2018. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it may be that I had obviously written that one story even earlier than that. So. You know, it just it's 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 for me not a not a quick game. Right, right. So yeah. Even though I personally find short stories challenging to write, they seem to me to be the form that most closely parallels the way that we all do that most basic of human activities, which is storytelling. When somebody asks you, What did you do today? you don't respond with a novel, you essentially respond with a short story. Do you think there's something deeply human in the form? And if, and if so, how do you try to tap into that when you're writing a short story? Um, I think that's a great, great thought. Yeah. I think that's really, really good observation that it's, um, it's, it, I, I, one reason why it may, may, um, sort of fit that, that idea is that, that it's usually one voice. In other words, if it's you're following one main character with a novel, you can branch out and tell the story from a number of different characters' perspectives or braid a number of different stories together. And usually with a short story, you're just following closely or you're seeing through the eyes of one person. And so that's why it ends up feeling like you're hearing a story being told by that, that one character and um, and also, usually, there's one principal incident that is being explored, or that the story um, culminates in, and that too, like you said, is, you know, how we tell stories. That we're trying to get to the punchline. We're trying to get to the main thing that happened. Um, how we were changed by something, or how we were affected by something, and and that is that's exactly what a short story is. That you 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 tell it to come to a culminating moment that 
even if your character doesn't quite understand what's changed in them, the reader at least knows mm-hmm. that this character has now changed or our perspective on them has changed. And so, yes, I think that's extremely human because we, we want to have some sense of learning some lesson from incidents or things that happen. Um, and it sort of it takes away the arbitrary nature, nature of life because it's uh, there seems to be some lesson usually. And, uh, you know, if you do a good short story, you're not hammering that home. You're not like you're not trying to teach a lesson, but there is some subtle way that a meaning is getting across to your reader and maybe even your character learns something right, uh, right. consciously. Yeah. So that's, that's my wife. My wife is actually a member of a, a short story book club, I guess you would call it, at the local public library. And once a month, the librarian sends out the name of a short story and they all read the short story and then they, they come and discuss it. And they they will they meet for the same amount of time they would meet as if they were going to discuss a novel. Uh, but they're discussing mm-hmm. a story that is 10 or 15 or 20 pages long. Do you think that short story readers read more closely than novel readers and assume that in a, in such a tightly knit form, every phrase must be somehow significant. And if you do think that, how does that assumption affect the way that you write a story? Wow. Um, you know, I think if you're really, really lucky if your reader is reading that closely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that's a gift that the reader would be giving to the writer. Um, so your, your wife's book club is, it, any writer would be lucky to have that book club read their work. Um, because, you know, and that is what you want as a writer. You really want people to pay attention. You've spent all this time and effort and you've thought about it carefully and, you know, you've revised it a million times. And so what greater reward than to have a reader actually notice it and, and um, you know, be affected by it. So that's that's great. And, and I think with short stories, it does matter more in a way um, – you know, there are course novelists who, you know, really try to perfect every sentence. And, you know, we, of course, admire that. But um, but I think that that with the short story, it's it is more manageable. And, you know, you, you can kind of hang in there and really carefully think about your paragraphs closely. I mean, I when I'm in the thick of revising, I picture the paragraphs as little um, separate individual uh, you know, units mm-hmm. and try to think mm-hmm. about them each paragraph. Um, and, uh, you know, if a story is really well done, you know, it's like poetry in that way where every line yeah. matters. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked to other short story writers about this. And as you mentioned, often stories in a collection have been written over a long period of time. They've been published in magazines and journals, or some of them maybe have not been published. And then somehow you have to make that into a book that is not just an accumulation, but is is a collection and you have a title that ties it all together. So, so tell us about your title and how that title makes us understand that this is more than just an accumulation of old work. Right. Yes, exactly. Well, it's, um, so as I mentioned, I did write these over 10 years and they, these are stories that are quite disparate in terms of the characters. They're all told from, uh, from or about different characters, different ages, different genders, different backgrounds, totally different settings. There's some in New York City. There's one in the Roman Forum. Um, there's, uh, you know, they're, they're an 80-year-old artist character, a 
preteens, young skateboarder, a wife and mother, you know, all different ages and, and backgrounds. So you're right. How on earth do you bring these things together? What do they have in common? And um, I, as I was, you know, thinking about this and starting to pull the collection together, um, I, I just started to notice that these characters seem to have in common a theme, which is that they really are always striving for happiness. And you could say we're all striving for happiness, but in the case of these particular characters, it seems like that's what the, the crux of their stories are about, um, that they're making decisions, sometimes good ones, sometimes colossally bad ones. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and they're trying to finagle their way towards happiness, connect with other people to find it. And once they do find it, trying to hold on to it. Right. So, you know, all the stories are about the elusive nature of happiness and how precious it is. Um, and that one phrase of the title, Shelf Life of Happiness, um, it actually was in a different short story that I wrote um, that could have made it into this collection. But I liked, um, I love that story, but it wasn't quite right for this collection, but I stole the line from that other story. <laughs> I in, infused it into a different story, gave it to one of my favorite characters to say in a, in a, um, in a moment of dialogue, and then realized that that was my title. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you, you do exactly what you're describing. You sort of juggle these pieces and, um, you know, you're trying to fit them together like pieces of a puzzle. And, uh, you know, hopefully in the end, I think it works. You often begin your stories with the ordinary, uh, a drive on a snowy road, a new pair of sandals, an Easter egg hunt. What do you establish in terms of the relationship between the reader and the text and the reader's expectation when you begin with, you know, the everyday? Well, I... I guess with this this collection, um, my hope is that the reader will feel like they can relate to these characters, that the characters are not um, so foreign to them or their circumstances so extreme, maybe, or um, so distant that they can just immediately feel like, I, I kind of get this person. I could be doing that same thing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hadn't. You know, it's interesting because I, I, that's a, I, I like that observation, but I, I don't think I set out as a writer to say to myself, oh, I'm going to write something that my reader will relate to. You just sit down and you, you what floods out of you is, is the story that you need to tell. But right. I, I think that in the end, these stories actually do focus on sort of more what we have in common than anything else, really. Mm-hmm. So that's why it maybe starts with... Um, something really recognizable, moments that are recognizable or settings that are recognizable. I read earlier this year and just absolutely fell in love with Rebecca Mackay's latest novel, The Great Believers. And we had Rebecca on the show this summer to talk about her novel, which is set during the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. And all that is by background of saying that I was especially drawn to the first story in your collection called Best Man. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about the setup of that story? Sure. Um, Well, I have yet to read her novel, and it's absolutely on my bedside table, and I'm really excited to read it. I care a lot about that time and new people who um, were diagnosed with HIV and AIDS in the 80s. And and this is a story that sort of wrestles with that, but in a a kind of an odd way, (laughs) in the sense that it's a story about 
um, a young man who has traveled from New York all the way across the country to join with his uh, longtime friend, dear, dear old friend who he's known since college days, um, who the friend is getting married. Um, but in a very unusual and kind of sad way, um, he's getting married in Reno at a, um, you know, one of these sort of wedding chapels. Um, and he's getting married in sort of a, in a hurried way because he's actually um, dying of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And so the best man is going to a very unconventional um, wedding, you might say. And it really is just the only characters in the story are the bride, the groom, and the best man. Right. And you, the story is about their relationships. Yeah. Would you read us a little bit from that story? Absolutely. Where would you like me to read or just start at oh, the just, beginning? Oh, just pick a spot. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I'll start here. Um, Snow fell hard up in Reno. The interstate started out gray, but as the elevation rose, the white line disappeared and the cars crawled as they came into town. Keith gently pressed his foot against the floorboard in sympathy with Caroline, who was at the wheel and making slow, intermittent progress behind a snowplow that scattered wet sand. It struck the windshield and made a sound like rice hitting the backs of a bride and groom. Keith had arrived in San Francisco on a flight from New York that afternoon. He was here to serve as best man to his closest friend, Don, who planned to marry his new girlfriend, Caroline, up in Reno on this Wednesday afternoon. No one had expected the surprise late April storm, and Keith wondered if that might change things. From the passenger seat, he handed Caroline a bandana, which she used to wipe the fogging glass. The car heater purred on high to keep Don warm in the back seat, He was fast asleep and snoring, a sleeping bag bundled up to his chin. Keith remembered that familiar sound from their tiny freshman dorm room where their beds had been so close he could reach across and poke Don to get him to stop. Keith was tempted to do that now, but when he looked around, the sight of Don made him suck in air between his teeth. Keith's old friend looked worse than bad, even when sleeping, or maybe especially when sleeping. Caroline spoke softly. He wants his ashes tossed out over the ocean. Keith nodded as if he were prepared for this. He had met Caroline for the first time at the airport only a few hours before and assumed they'd skirt the issue for at least a little while longer. I can stop there. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Titles, I find, are always a challenge for me, whether it's for a story or for a novel or for a play. And I find that the best titles are short, they're simple, and they can be interpreted in multiple ways, which I think is absolutely true of the title of this story. Tell us about how the title illuminates the story in in different ways at different points in the narrative. Mm, That's a great question. Um, Well, this story is really about the friendship between these two men, and um, they've been through different phases of their friendship, as as that section just suggested. They knew each other back in college. And then they have each gone on in their lives. And Don, the, the man who is the, the groom, um, he is, has been a, a gay man active in the gay community in San Francisco. Um, Keith, the best man, has been in Brooklyn and has been sort of dating women off and on. And so Keith is both the best man at Don's wedding but also the question is, you know, is he also sort of the best man to Don in general, the man that Don has loved the most all these years? Or in a funny way, is um, Don, uh, the, the groom, Keith's best man, his favorite man? Um, so 
it, it, it plays with that idea of best, I suppose, as in, you know, favorites, as in most loved. Um, it's really a love story between these two men um, who have, uh, you know, different orient- sexual orientations, but have a very, very deep friendship. And what that friendship, by the end of the story, teaches Keith, the man who has, has gone across the country to uh, his friend's wedding. And um, he's got a lot to learn, as it turns out, from his friend um, who's dying of AIDS. And, um, and I think by the end of the story, he, he's finally learned it. Um, something about really loving people and actually showing that love. Um, in a funny way, Keith has held back all these years, and uh, his, he can finally show his affection towards Dawn. Unfortunately, it's right. Unfortunately, as Don is dying, but mm-hmm. but it's uh, you know moving story. I hope because it, it shows how the love really can come out between these two men. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Elmore Leonard wrote this very famous piece called Ten Rules for Good Writing," and it begins with yeah. rule number one: never open a book with weather. Now, this is a piece of advice I completely ignored <laughs> in my novel, The Bookman's Tale. So I feel like I'm okay pointing it out in other people's stories. Um, and your story, as we heard, begins with the sentence: "Snow fell hard up in Reno." But talk yeah. to us a little bit about the role that weather plays in the story, because to me, the the weather is like this very ever present, very powerful force in this story. Yeah, I think so. Um, the other um, w- one thing that this this snowstorm does is uh, that uh, Keith, our our best man, wanders out into it and walks in it at night with the snow kind of raging around him. Uh, the town of Reno or the, the the strip malls in Reno have shut down, and there are no cars on the highway, and so he's sort of walking up the the, the middle of the road. Um, one moment I, I like in the story is where the uh, stoplight is swinging uh, over his head, uh, kind of you know going from green to yellow to red, and there are no cars around, and he's just being battered by this by the snow, and um, so the snow has this sort of striking element, and it and it obviously makes him very very cold, but on the other hand, once he steps back inside, he's both frozen and also overheated, and. Uh, so he's sort of flaming, and there are these moments in the story where he feels his own blood rushing to his cheeks and rushing to his legs, and all in response to this extreme weather. Um, and the mention, of course, of the blood um, being so tied to that weather element, but it's also so tied to Don's illness mm-hmm. and him mm-hmm. having AIDS. So there's sort of this way that there's a storm raging inside of Don as he is lying there dying, but there's a storm raging outside, and Keith has to sort of weather it, literally, um, in this story. So yeah. I, I think that I think it worked. They worked together. It, it felt to me yeah. too like it was a way of of isolating the characters, and they feel sort of those three characters feel m- more and more isolated to me as as the mm-hmm. uh, as the narrative goes on. Especially once the wedding is over and they leave the wedding chapel, and it really is just the three of them, and you get the sense that there's sort of nobody else in the whole world. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It makes it maybe a little more intense what goes on between them. Um, that there's no sense that there's they're they're not hearing anything outside. It's all muffled and quiet, mm-hmm. and um, everything's shut down around them. And um, and then you know the very last moments. It's the next day, and the storm has passed, and the sunlight when they open the curtains is just so bright. You know that feeling when you look out at yeah. fresh snow and. And it's just, it's, it's um, striking, you know, how it can almost blind you. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, you know, that's, I think, supposed to uh, help uh, show how Keith has, um, you know, 
has, has passed through something and come out the other side of it. Yeah. Sometimes certain words will stand out to me in a story, especially if they're repeated in the in the same, uh, you know, within a few pages of each other. I'll start looking at the context of each repetition. And in Best Man, there's a, there's a moment within a few paragraphs, I think, where uh, Keith draws this swirl of snow on the hood of the car and thinks of Caroline as an angel. And then just a few sentences later, he says of Don, he had never been an angel. What do you accomplish with that sort of juxtaposition of, of comparing one character to an angel and then saying that another one never was an angel? Well, I, I think Keith in this moment is trying hard to figure out who this new woman is in who the woman is new to Don's life and is very new to Keith's life. He doesn't know her at all. They just met when she picked him up at the airport. And um, yet he's already sort of starting to understand that she has some kind of, she has some sort of greater understanding of uh, Keith's old friend Don. And so he is admiring of her in certain ways. And um, notices her beauty. Um, she's physically very lovely, and um, so he's sort of drawn to that. And he's also trying to recall that his his friend. One of the things he liked about him was his uh, Don was sort of uh, sort of a tough guy, kind of rough and tumble, but also kind of body and not very um, not very pure, not like an angel. Um, and so I think he's trying in his mind to contrast the two and make sense of them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that you know, just repeating that might just emphasize that their their contrasts. How one is like an angel, and the other definitely isn't. As just sort of a side note yeah. to that, I love the fact that there are two stories in this collection that have the word cobblestones in the opening sentence. I think that's just great. Um, both crying in <laughs> Italian and white dog. I thought, thank goodness she didn't oh. put the poor skateboarder on the cobblestones. That, that would have been bad. <laughs> that would have been the end of him. Yeah, no, that's good. Oh, good. Well, apparently I like cobblestones. Yeah. I, had no, I had not noticed that. But well, yes. I mean, it's funny how, how things like that will jump out at you. And, and I like that because I mean, now I'm, uh-huh. now I feel like I almost feel like, okay, I'm in the author's head a little bit. This is somebody who, who likes the sound and the rhythm of that particular word. And so I can kind of like, all right, I, I, yeah. I can understand that. Uh, yeah. Maybe also I like a world that has cobblestones yeah, too. Exactly, exactly. I think you do too, because you write historical. Well, parts, so and that, go. that brings up something else I want to talk about, which is, which is setting, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, in a novel and writing a historical novel, especially I have, I have a lot of time to, to develop setting over many, many chapters, but in a short story, you have to work you know, very quickly, sometimes developing your setting in a, in a sentence or two. Um, mm-hmm. And the story Crying in Italian is set in Rome. Uh, to me, Rome feels almost like a character in that story. Is it helpful when, you're, when you have so little time to, to write a story to set it in a place where maybe your readers have some familiarity, some preconceived notions, some preconceived emotions about, this, about the setting? I guess it could in that instance where it's the Roman Forum. Um, uh, you know, on the other hand, there are other stories. There, there's one that's set in a garden. You know, well, there are actually two set in gardens in a way. One in a backyard with an Easter egg hunt going on, and the other in a in a sort of a New England backyard. Um, but uh, I, I think it, you know, I think you're right that you do have to to sketch it. Um, you just have to choose your details. Um, you know, as best you can, um, not waste the reader's time and, and just try to nail it uh, fairly quickly. Um, you can develop it somewhat as the story goes along. Um, you know, I wrote, I wrote two novels 
um, that are both set in rural northwestern China. Mm. And they are both um, about, both books are about Americans there. And uh, one is in 1910, and that's River of Dust. And the other one's 1937, and that's Dreams of the Red Phoenix. And um, I got a lot of feedback um, on both of them, but I'll just mention that River of Dust, um, people could say, said that they could, they could taste the, the sand, the grit of the sand coming in from the Gobi Desert, and they could feel the wind coming off that desert and how rocky it was and how um, you know, uh, rugged the countryside was. Um, same thing with Dreams of the Red Phoenix. They could, pick, they could picture the, the caves where the communists hung out in, uh, uh, during the start of World War II and you know, what it felt like there and the mud that would rise up all the way um, practically to your, your knees and things like that. I've never been to northwestern rural China, mm-hmm. and I have not ever, you know. So the upshot is you can describe things as a writer um, where you, I, I, I don't advise you counting on your reader having been to some place sure. because I haven't been to them, and yet, you know, you just have to make yourself imagine it as a writer and then hopefully bring your reader along with you, you know, so... Mm-hmm. I think when you talk yeah. about the taste of the sand blowing off the Gobi, you really hit something there that in yeah. in establishing setting, we can use a lot of different senses. And and I find that is true in crying in Italian. You know, the kids are going to get their gelato or whatever they're off together. They decide to get lemonade, I think. And, uh, yeah. you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of sensory uh, input that's happening in that. I mean, it starts off with her talking about how much her feet hurt, you know, so immediately... Yeah. I'm I'm sort of in that that sensory moment. Um, you said you you said with this story, which is as you said, set in the Roman Forum, that you started off with with setting. How do you if you get an idea for a setting, then what's what's the next step to find the character who's going to be in that setting? Well, let's see. I guess usually I have in mind a character, and um, you know, in this case, I, I knew it was going to be this woman who is. Um, you know, disgruntled with her life and, um, and sort of the heat and the, uh, sort of sensuousness of the Italian setting, um, even though it's dry and hot, she's, she, she fixates on certain things, the, the brown, um, beating, the perspiration on the back of the, the suntanned, um, uh, um, interpreters, um, or, or tour guides neck for example, the man's neck. And she, she keeps zeroing in in this uh, slightly lustful way during it. And I was like, okay, you know, here we go. I don't know where this woman is headed, but she's got some, she's got some problems with her family, with her husband. And so she's, um, you know, she's going to get herself into trouble in one way or another. I can tell that. And then you sort of follow it. And, and um, what happens is a she spots because her eye is quite roving right now. She definitely zeroes in on uh, a, an Italian couple who are kissing uh, a man and woman, and our protagonist, who's an American woman, ends up following them off the trail, and literally, you know, both metaphorically and physically, goes off the trail. Um, so, anyway, it's um, you know that's you know so she goes deeper into the landscape, and that's an opportunity to describe the setting a little more, but. By that point, you're kind of the story really is hers. Yeah, I, I think it's her. that's a really interesting moment for me when she goes off the trail and starts to follow them because 
simultaneously, I am, I am with her. I am, I am feeling her frustrations, her pains, and I'm judging her for letting her oh, yeah. children wander off in the middle of a foreign city. You know, and, yeah. and and those are really interesting feelings to be holding simultaneously about a character. Yep, yep. I think that's right. I mean, I I set her up. Um, you know, she's worried about herself as a bad mother. She's concerned, and and she should be. Um, <laughs> you know, um, luckily later in the book, there's a story that's told from the perspective. It's sort of a Greek chorus of mothers, um, and that's Easter morning. And um, and in that, I think the women do much better. You know, they're not all negligent, and in fact, they're quite understanding of their children. Um, but this mom in um, in crying in Italian is. Uh, you know, she's she's not doing a great job yeah, as a mom. It's not her best day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You write across sure. differences in many of these stories. You have characters who are of a different gender from yourself, of radically different ages, both much younger and much older, um, different sexual orientation. How do you put yourself into the shoes of someone who is is radically different from yourself? Well, I mean, I know this is a hot topic of the moment, you know, who gets to tell the story. Um, I have just have had as a practice in my writing to always tell stories from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, I have, you know, always uh, the two two novels that are set in China have uh, men and women, Americans and Chinese characters. and, uh, and, you know, I've always done stories, short stories from different perspectives. To me, that's what's interesting about writing. And that's really what um, makes it rich, both for the writer, certainly, but also hopefully for the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That it's a way for us to, you know, try to understand what it might be like to, to be in someone else's shoes. Right. Um, and the only way to do that successfully is to do it as thoughtfully as you possibly can and, you know, to, um, you know, edit and reread and reconsider and set aside and return to and have other people read, you know, everything that you write so that um, if you're, you know, really not perceiving something clearly, if you're kind of getting it wrong about a character or a character's background, that you can catch it before right. it ever goes right. to publication. But but I think you've got to try. I think that's what it's all about. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us all something to think about uh, and to think about writing and give our listeners some special insight into you and your work. So if you're ready, we will begin yes. the speed round. Okay. Do what, my best. What word do you love to work into your writing? Well, okay, besides cobblestones, now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> um, okay, I'm just going to pick one. I think I like the word brilliant. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but that just comes to mind right now um, because it suggests both light and something about color and brightness, mm-hmm. but obviously also intelligence. And what, so that's great. What yeah. word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I, I think probably something judgmental. So meaning um, something where the writer um, labels somebody um, um, foolish. Ha, there you go. I have no idea why. <laughs> <laughs> where's, where's your favorite place to write? 
Um, I have a lovely study, and I've been lucky. Every home I've ever been in, we've managed to, my husband and I have managed to make a, a, a decent desk and a, a clear space for me to work. I like to work by a window, and um, I have a door on my room, and that's really all that matters. Where could you never write? I'm not a writer who can write in public at a cafe, really write. I mean, I can write a letter, I can write emails, but really writing, can't really do it when there's tons going on around me and people's voices. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I noticed when proofing this book that I don't seem to pay very close attention to the strictest rules of commas. I seem to like to use commas sometimes in my own fashion. And we had some interesting conversations, my editor and I, and opted to keep a lot of them um, because there were reasons why I was using them the way I was. So I felt kind of proud of that. It's like, okay, apparently I'm doing it my own way. What was the first book you remember reading? You know, it's funny. I remember Johnny Tremaine, which I didn't enjoy. Hmm. Isn't that terrible? So that's not a great, that's not a great example. Um, I also remember reading um, The Wind in the Willows when I was even younger than that, and I did really enjoy that. And maybe it was partly the the, uh, the images, the, the uh, drawings, but um, there was something completely magical about that book. What are you reading now? I'm always reading a bit of everything. Um, so I've just finished reading Laura Vandenberg's The Third Hotel, um, and so I tend to read um, literary fiction. I read Richard Powers' The Overstory, which I thought was brilliant. I'm looking forward to reading Conscience uh, by Alice Madison. But I also really, and, and oh, and I'm also reading A Lucky Man by Jamal Brinkley. Um, but I also really enjoy, enjoy reading what I suppose the publishing industry calls upmarket fiction, really entertaining, great storytelling, like uh, my friend Jenny Brown's book, Modern Girls. Um, I loved the book called Eleanor Oliphant. Um, I really enjoy good storytelling. Mm-hmm. What book would you like to have written? Well, now that I mention it, I love that book, Eleanor Oliphant. <laughs> 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 Why not? Um, but no, but because it just because it's on my mind. Um, oh, golly. I really love Kate Atkinson's novels mm-hmm. and her life after life. I really admired. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? I'd like to write a, a, a deeply researched, thick Victorian novel. Hmm. And, and finally, just take an awful lot of discipline. <laughs> finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? They enjoyed my work. Um, that they found themselves in it. Hmm. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Virginia Pye, whose book Shelf Life of Happiness is available wherever books are sold. Virginia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Charlie. I really enjoyed it. We've reached the end of the busy fall publishing season, so during December and January, we'll have just two episodes of Inside the Writer's Studio each month, posting on the 10th and 20th. Tune in next time when I'll be talking to fellow Winston-Salem writer Megan Bryant about her picture books for young children, books for middle graders, 
and especially her recent novel for young adults, Glow. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.